When there's perception without mindfulness, then we simply get caught in this naming process. We get lost in the concept and we stay on the very surface appearance of the experience. We're not listening or hearing the secret name, the sight and feel of the thing itself. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Deep understanding of anatta, or the empty, selfless, insubstantial nature of things, really the jewel of the Buddha's teaching, because it radically transforms our understanding, both of ourselves and the nature of the world. But this teaching of selflessness, anatta, is also, for many people, the most puzzling aspect of the teachings. In some way, it's counterintuitive. And always it's the preface of the most frequently asked questions. If there's no self, who came to the retreat? If there's no self, who's making all this effort? If there's no self, who gets reborn? Who gets enlightened? If there's no self, who falls in love? Who gets angry? Who has the unique memories that arise? And these are the very appropriate questions that come up in the face of this teaching. Sometimes people hear about selflessness and they get frightened because somehow in the imagination we might think that if we actually have a moment of realization of selflessness, we'll suddenly disappear. And like a magician's trip, no longer there. But as the observing power of our minds gets stronger, we begin to understand to a much greater depth and profundity just what the Buddha was talking about in this teaching of anatta. We begin to see for ourselves, not as a philosophic statement, we begin to see out of our own experience that the self is not what we thought it to be. We begin to see that the body is not self, and that thoughts are not self, that emotions are not self. 
not even awareness. We begin to see that this very deeply rooted sense of I, of mine, of ego, is a mental construct. It's a fabrication. It's a concept that has been created. And as we get glimpses of this, that self is a fabricated concept, it's both a great surprise, because we've been living in the world of self for so long, and it's also a tremendous relief. Just imagine, as you sit here for all these weeks, if we could come to that realization that all of those neurotic patterns of mind don't belong to us. I mean, it's a huge relief. And the real suffering is the belief that they do. Well, not only those thought patterns, but also all the others as well. They don't belong to anybody. No one is the owner. They don't refer back to anyone. Everything simply arising out of changing conditions. Things appear when the conditions are present and then disappear when the conditions change. Everything we call self or call I is simply this flow or play of changing appearances. One of the most uh, endearing teachings around this, something common made by a Sri Lankan monk when he said, no self, no problem. All of our problems that we create, whether it's in our meditation practice, you know, and as we sit struggling with our problems or in our lives, come about because we've invested the sense of I into them. So tonight I'd like to speak about how we have gotten into this tangle. If indeed, as the Buddha suggested, and invites us to see there is no abiding self, that it is a mental concept, why is the sense of it so deeply conditioned? Because we all have this very deeply felt sense that there is an I at the center of all experience. So where does that come from if it's a basic illusion? We need to back up and really take a look at the foundation or the building blocks of our experience. When we use the word mind, mind in the Buddhist sense, it means particularly the faculty of cognizance, the knowing faculty. 
But when we try to understand what this mind is, what this knowing faculty is, and I invite you now to look inside. There's one Tibetan text which has as its refrain after each paragraph or two of teachings, it says, look within at your own mind. Look within at your own mind. So it's not something to figure out, something really just to observe, to look within. What is the nature of this knowing, this cognizance? When we look within, looking directly at the nature of this awareness, we see that it's invisible. There's nothing to see. It's invisible. It's clear. It's empty like space. It's lucid. It's unobstructed. It is the naturally pure knowing faculty. But we can look directly within to experience for ourselves this nature of mind. A mind is also more than this simple knowing faculty. At each moment of experience, there arise in different combinations, different mental factors, mental qualities, which color the consciousness, color the knowing in different ways. And so all the mental states that we're familiar with and talked about so much, of greed and hatred and fear and joy and love and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and restlessness and the whole range of states that we experience, they're all different mental factors arising at particular times, changing according to the conditions and vanishing. These factors don't belong to anyone, not I, not mine, Simply arising appearances. Some of these factors of mind lead to happiness. And so they are called, very pragmatically, the wholesome factors. Precisely because they lead to greater happiness. Some of these mental factors or qualities lead to suffering. So they are called the unwholesome factors. It's really simple. So there's the natural purity, natural awareness, the purity of the knowing faculty of mind. And then all of these different factors arising and vanishing and playing. We call it the play of mental factors. Now there's one particular mental quality or mental factor which, when it's out of balance, keeps us imprisoned in the world of concepts. It keeps us imprisoned in the conventional notion of self, of I. And so it's very important to understand how this particular mental factor works because it's at the root of our delusion. Really what keeps us locked in the sense of self. And this is the factor of mind, the function of mind, which is called perception. In the Buddhist psychology, it has a very definitive meaning. 
Perception is that quality of mind which has the function to pick out the distinguishing marks of an object, of an experience, give it a name, and store it in memory for future recall. So a very simple example. We hear a sound. Consciousness simply knows the sound. Perception arises in that moment, recognizes that sound as distinct from all the others, and calls it bird. Consciousness simply knows the sound. Perception recognizes the sound, gives it a concept, gives it a name, bird, stores it in memory, so that next time we hear that particular sound, the concept is right there. We have it on recall. When perception, this quality of recognition, is balanced with mindfulness, the perception, naming bird, it frames the experience, that's a bird, so that we can then drop in through the power, the observing power of mindfulness, to the direct experience of the sound itself. In a book I've been reading, really, it's a wonderful book, Pulitzer Prize winner this year. It's called The Hours by Michael Cunningham. I was reading, there was one line, which one sentence, which just expressed this beautifully. He wrote, everything in the world has its own secret name, a name that cannot be conveyed in language but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. So there's a secret name under the conventional name. The conventional name is the perception, is bird. The secret name is the sight and feel of the thing itself. Each experience speaks itself directly when we can be mindful. When there's perception without mindfulness, then we simply get caught in this naming process. We get lost in the concept and we stay on the very surface appearance of the experience. We're not listening or hearing the secret name, the sight and feel of the thing itself. We're just staying on our surface recognition, our surface perception. And so we reify through our concepts, our understanding of what the particular experiences are. In that way, it's very difficult to stay open and fresh in a deep experience because we're lost or we're caught simply by the name of it. I'll give you an example. It's a story which happened years ago with an old, old friend, and I've, I've told this story often because it's so striking and it's kind of sad. 
the story told to me by a friend of mine who had a young son who was just in grade school. You know, and the teacher asked him, what color are apples? They asked the class, what color are apples? You know, and everybody said red or yellow or green. And this kid said white. The teacher said, apples aren't white. They might be golden, they might be green, they might be red, they're certainly not white. The kid was insistent, apples are white. The teacher was insistent, apples aren't white. And kind of went on and on. Of course, the kid was getting more and more upset. There's a little boy. And finally, you know, with this great frustration, this little boy said, when you cut the apple open, what color is it? You know, and just a different way of understanding things, of seeing things a little more deeply. But usually we're so caught in our concept of how things are, apples are red, apples are this, apples are that, that we don't see, we don't open to other ways of perceiving, other levels of perception. And I think, unfortunately, we've all been conditioned that way a lot. I'd like to read part of a poem, most of it, which illustrates this prison of concept that we live in and how it distances us from the secret name of things, from the experience of things in themselves. And it's a poem by a Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize several years ago. I'm not so good at this Polish name, but it's Wisława Zimborska. She writes, of course, it's all in translation, but quite extraordinary poetry. The the name of this poem, poem is View with a Grain of Sand. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name, Our glance, our touch mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched. And that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. For it, it is no different from falling on anything else. This next couple of lines is a wonderful metaphor for the mind. The window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. Its water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and its waves to themselves are neither singular nor plural. And all this beneath a sky by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all, and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. A second passes, a second second, a third, but there are three seconds only for us. Time has passed like a courier with urgent news. But that's just our simile. The character is invented. His haste is make-believe. His news inhuman. I 
it's amazing the degree to which we inhabit a world of concepts and ideas and how they condition how we are in the world and how we relate. It's as if we're living in a world of words through the power of these concepts. When we don't observe carefully, when we're on this very super, superficial level of observation, there is one deeply habituated perception that we have both about the world and about ourselves that becomes the origin of a multitude of inaccurate conclusions. So it's a perception that if we do not see and understand leads us down a road of tremendous delusion. It's a perception that keeps us from understanding what is true. And this is the perception we commonly have of the solidity of things. We have this sense, this view, this perception, this recognition that things in this world, in this, is solid. And as long as our perception of solidity is fixed in the mind and conditions our understanding, then we do not deeply see or open to the truth of impermanence, to the truth of the momentary insubstantial nature of all the phenomena. So why do we have this perception of solidity, which is common? I think we all share this. We live in a world of solid objects. Why is it so strongly conditioned as our view? One reason is because of the rapidity of change. Phenomena is changing so quickly that unless our minds are finely tuned and deeply observant, we don't see the change. Just some simple everyday examples. You know, you go to the movies. We get immersed in the story, in the make-believe of the story. But what's really happening? What's really happening are separate frames of film passing before light, But it's going so quickly, we're not seeing the separate frames. And so we construct a whole world in our imagination from what we see, as if there's some real story happening up there. But really, very quickly changing momentary frames. Perception. And we probably wouldn't go to the movies you know, if we were seeing those separate frames of film. (laughs) But it's an illusion. It's not, the way we usually perceive it is not really what's true. Well, you know, if you kind of whirl a flashlight around or a, a torch, you whirl it fast enough, you see sort of a ring of light, a ring of fire. And it looks like there's a ring there. But there's no ring. We're not seeing the changing nature. We're not seeing the rapidity of the change. And so it looks solid. It looks 
fixed, it looks stable. So the rapidity of change deceives us until we train our minds to see it clearly. And the other reason we're lost in the perception of solidity is that we observe things from a distance. We're not accustomed to observing deeply and carefully and closely. We don't see the composite nature of experience. I mean, here's something that seems quite solid, you know, this big bell, our ordinary level of perception, solid. If we looked at it under a microscope, powerful microscope, it'd be a whole different world, completely different. And the solidity of it would begin to dissolve. Just a very simple way of noticing how we observe things. And when you're outside on the front lawn and you look into the distance, basically you see a mass of color. And then maybe you look more carefully. You begin to see it's not just a mass of color, it's different trees. And maybe if you could walk closer and you begin to look more carefully at the trees, you see, oh, it's a trunk and it's a leaf and it's branches. And then you look even more closely you know, and it's just the variations of the bark and this, the veins and the leaves, and you're just closer, closer, closer. At that point, tree has dissolved. There's no tree at all in that close level of, of observation. We begin to penetrate that illusion of the solidity of things. Things are solid, but only from a very limited perspective. What we need to do in our practice is to refine our powers of awareness so we are not imprisoned by that particular level. There's one example from science that it is just astounding to me when I think about and reflect, because it it indicates the magnitude of what's contained within things we think of as being solid and fixed. It says that, let me try to get this right, the level at which quantum quantum-level interactions are happening, whatever they are, which I don't quite know, (laughs) but they're happening. The level at which they're happening is to a sugar cube as the sugar cube is to the entire observable universe. And isn't that astounding that... I mean, presumably, these quantum-level things, happenings, processes, whatever we call them, they're going on right within this body and everything else. So there's a world, a universe happening that is to a sugar cube as the sugar cube. I mean, it's vast, it's huge, it's unfathomable. And yet we go around in this kind of daze 
thinking, oh yeah, it's all really solid and fixed, and yet yeah, this is who I am. And because we're not seeing carefully, we're not seeing deeply enough. And whether or not we ever get to see through our meditative eye the quantum level or not, I don't know. But we can certainly develop that power of observation that penetrates this illusion of solidity. And it changes our view, it changes our understanding, it weakens our attachment to this notion of solid, fixed self. We can see this tendency to solidify ourselves in the world in so many arenas. This tendency to solidify through concepts, how concepts fix things in our minds and really become barriers to seeing the true, impermanent, empty, insubstantial nature. Just some few very simple examples of how through this process of unbalanced perception, the naming through recognition, fixing the name, holding it in memory, recalling it again and again, when that's without mindfulness, we get lost in this realm of names few simple examples, few concepts that condition us a lot. We've created in our mind the notion, notions, concepts of place. When we divide the whole world up into separate countries and nations, and how many wars, how many people have been killed over this concept of nationalism and boundaries. You know, from outer space, one of the things the astronauts all reported in kind of almost in a mystical kind of way is seeing the earth as one. But the boundaries, the way we've divided up is strictly a function of our own conceptual process. And that attachment to the concept of place gets carried down to the most ridiculous levels. I've heard of and perhaps even know some people who basically needed therapy because their area code changed. (laughs) We can get so attached to (laughs) 617... Well, when we went from 617 to 508, it felt like a downward, <laughs> downward social mobility. <laughs> and then went to 978, you know. What is going on? But we do, we get attached. Concepts of ownership. And we have the idea that we own things. There was a quite a revealing and distressing book called King Leopold's Ghost. It came out a couple of years ago. 
And basically, it was the history of King Leopold, I guess, I don't know, either the first or the second of Belgium, claiming ownership of what became called the Belgian Congo. And through some, you know, political diplomatic machinations, he suddenly became the owner of this huge, vast land in Africa. I mean, huge. And the horrible abuses that went on because there was this common agreement that he owned it. I mean, that's just some ideas in people's minds with disastrous consequences. We have the idea, maybe we don't think we own countries, but we probably believe that we own possessions. Depending on the strength of that concept, we either get extremely attached and very upset when things change or are lost. There's a haiku poem that I just read. The barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. Just imagine going home. Oh, my house has burnt down. Now I can see the moon. <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> because we have this idea that we own it and it's mine and it's fixed and it's solid and it should and let me say that with all of these concepts I'm not suggesting that they're not useful they are useful, they have a place but they are just a concept they do not reflect what is actually true so can we use them when they're skillful but also be free in the use of them. How would you feel? You come into the hall and somebody's sitting on your zafu. I'll bet you'd have a thought or two. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly... You know, this sense of possessiveness, of ownership, and how that idea can permeate the way we're relating. A huge concept. This is one of the most powerful ones in our lives with huge consequences for us. And that is the whole mental construct of time. And in that poem, View of the Grain of Sand, she really, she got it, how we create the notion of time. We're sitting here, and there are certain kinds of thoughts. We call them memories. We call them recollections, remembrances. What's happening is they're thoughts or images in the present moment, but we create a concept create an even bigger framework, memories, reflections, remembrances. We create a meta-concept past, and then somehow throw that concept back into the world as if the past is a reality from which we've come. 
We do the same thing with future. You know, we're sitting here, minding our own business with the breath, and then a certain thoughts of planning or imagining or anticipating, they're thoughts or images happening right now in the present moment. But we put a name, a concept, planning, anticipating, then a meta-concept, future, meta, M-E-T-A, future. And then again, we, we invest it in some reality as if the future is out there waiting for us. And for the most part, we go through our lives, and you can see from your experience being on retreat, I don't know, is it 85, 90% of the time are we lost in past and future? A huge amount of time believing that this past and this future are somehow real and not seeing that they are simply experiences in the moment. When we are caught by this concept, it's like we are carrying huge mountains on our shoulders. We're carrying the past and future around, tremendously weighed down by them. And yet in the moment that we see whatever the thought is, whatever the memory is, whatever the imagination for the future is, It can be wonderful, it can be terrible. In the moment that we see that is just a thought right now. The weight of that concept of time dissolves. A moment's experience is very light. The the concept of past and future is an incredibly heavy burden to carry. So we can see, and this is not hard to see because it arises so many times through the day. We just have to be mindful enough to really acknowledge carefully what is the actual experience in this moment, not our concept about the experience, not this construct which we're making, What is really happening right now? And it's tremendously liberating. Just one simple example, which I'm sure has come up for you, came up for me many times in my practice. I call them creation of time thoughts. You know, you can be sitting and maybe feeling a little restless or bored or whatever. All of a sudden there's a thought Two and a half more months. (laughs) And then I'll never make it. You know. If we believe or we buy into that creation of time thought, we have just created in our minds through this concept two and a half more months, and then you're trying to sit for the rest of the hour with two and a half months weighing on your shoulders. But it's hard. <laughs> but if you are able to see in that moment, oh, two and a half more months, that's just a thought. That's all that happened. The thought is nothing. The thought comes and goes, and then you're right back being bored. 
or restless or whatever it is. It is tremendously lightening, tremendously enlightening to see how we buy in to the concepts of time. So it's something to look at because we actually can be free of that. Again, it's not that the concept is not useful. It is useful. But we need to use it rather than be enslaved by it. Concepts of self-image. And there's concepts of place, of ownership, of possessiveness, of time. And there are lots. We could use many different examples. We create ideas of ourselves, self-image, either how we present ourselves to other people, how we present ourselves to ourselves. Maybe they're worldly self-images. You know, I'm a really accomplished person, or I'm a really smart person, or I'm a flop, or I'm a whatever. (laughs) Or we have spiritual self-images. You know, and they can change from minute to minute. <laughs> I'm a great yogi. You know, we're, we're with the breath for a few times in a row and we're feeling really good. <laughs> and then we have a sitting that's really difficult and there's a lot of pain and a lot of restlessness. And then we feel, oh, I'm a terrible yogi. I'll never get this. And we just, this swing. But they're all just, Mental creations. Really all that's happening is a flow, a play of changing experience. That's all that's going on. But we create a concept, an image of it, and then we battle with it or feel constricted by it. I want to read a little something of somebody who really seemed quite free of self-image and the delight and the joy that comes from that freedom. This is Ryokan, who's a wonderful Japanese Zen monk, hermit, poet. You know, he would live alone up in the mountains, you know, in Japan, this very little hut, Uh, a very free spirit very free of sense of self or image. And often he would just go and play with the children, you know, in the village and he'd just be. So this is written by a, uh, a student of his. When Ryokan went out, children would follow him. Sometimes they would shout at him loudly, and the master would shout back in surprise, throwing up his hands, reeling backwards, and almost losing his balance. Whenever the children found the master, they were always ready to do this. Ordinary people frowned on this behavior. My late father once questioned the master about it. The master laughed and told him, When the children surprise me in this way, it makes them happy. When the children are happy, it makes me happy. Children are happy, and I'm happy too. Everyone is happy together. And so I do it all the time. (laughs) There's no truer happiness than this. 
This happiness of the masters was itself a manifestation of the ultimate truth. Nevertheless, at times Ryokan did become exhausted and would have to make his escape. The children liked to circle around him, clapping their hands and laughing with delight. When the teacher of Ryokan tires of this, he lies down and pretends to be dead. <laughs> then when the children are no longer hemming, in, hemming him in, he slowly gets up and walks away. He clearly was not constrained by the image of Zen Master. <laughs> you know, how he was... He was So it's a wonderful, it holds out a wonderful sense of possibility for us that the more we can let go of some self-image, how we think we should be, and we really let our happiness and our joy flow much more spontaneously. So we get caught in concepts place, of possessiveness, of ownership, of time, of past and future, of self-image. We get caught even in things that seem much more fundamental, where we, we think, well, they're not really concepts, they really who are who I am. Ideas of race and gender and age. Now, what color is your mind? Your mind black, white, yellow, brown? How old is your breath? Well, yeah, my breath is 55 years old. It doesn't make sense. You're sitting, the pain in your knee. Is the pain in your knee male or female? Now, clearly, these concepts do point to differences of experience. So it's not to throw the concepts out. However, there is a more fundamental level underneath those concepts, which really transcend them. Some of the deepest conditioning we have and the concept around which most of the suffering in ourselves and the world revolves is the concept of self, of I. Just like place and ownership and time and image and race and gender and all of that can be seen as concepts. The deepest one, the one that's at the root, the heart, so much suffering, is this notion, this idea of self, of I. Now, this notion of self, although very deeply conditioned and very familiar to us, really comes out of a very superficial perception of this mind-body process. When we observe more carefully, which is the whole purpose, the point of our doing this training, We're training the mind to observe more deeply, more carefully. We begin to see that what we're calling self, or we call self in our conventional language, is really a constellation 
of rapidly changing mental physical phenomena. That's what is going on. We see that self is a concept based on a superficial appearance. Paraphrase an old Nasruddin story. This is just a paraphrase. You know, get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and the first thought, even unspoken, is, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. Looks familiar. We see that image, that appearance in the mirror. Our first intuitive response is that recognition. Yeah, that's me. It's at this point in the talk that the example without which this talk cannot be given <laughs> is given. <laughs> it's 25 years of it. <laughs> The Big Dipper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go outside. <laughs> Look up at the sky. You see the Big Dipper. You know, it's a familiar constellation. Of course, many of you know the answer already. <laughs> but is there really a Big Dipper? <laughs> no. When we look up at the sky, we see that constellation, we create a concept, Big Dipper. But there's no Big Dipper up there. <laughs> but the interesting part of this is when you go outside and look up at the sky and it's clear, it's almost impossible not to see the Big Dipper because we've been so conditioned to have that constellation jump out of us, jump out at us, you know, and separate it from all the rest. Now, again, the concept Big Dipper is useful. You know, it kind of orients us in the directions, and but it also has sort of a deleterious effect if we are very caught in and attached to that concept, because. As long as we are fixed on the concept Big Dipper, what that concept is doing is separating that constellation in our minds from all the other stars in the sky. So all at once, instead of seeing the sky as a unity, we're seeing Big Dipper and then all the other constellations, we're seeing them as separate things. We're not seeing the unifying principle. Well, self is just like Big Dipper, Joseph, and each one of us. It's an appearance. It's a constellation of certain elements. It has an appearance. We call it Joseph. We call it self. And then we get caught or identified or attached to that concept. And that attachment keeps us separate from the experience of the unifying, non-separate nature of existence, of our experience. And so it's isolating, it's separating, it's contracting. On a relative level, 
the concept of self, like all the other concepts, is useful. So I'm not suggesting that we give up that level. We do relate as individuals. And yet there is an underlying reality, a deeper reality, in which we see that that is just a convention. And to the degree that we can see that deeper reality, we then can operate on this level of self without attachment, without fear. This is a kind of prose poem by Stephen Mitchell, who's, you probably know, he's, he's a wonderful poet and translator. And, uh, he's, he's a long-time Buddhist practitioner. The title of this is Narcissus, you know, of the Greek, Greek myth of that the person, the man who just got so absorbed in his own reflection that he actually died. He was so entranced by the beauty of his own reflection. This is kind of a Buddhist take on that myth. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it, the reflection, was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled, or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. And I like that so much because it's so such a wonderful description of this process like we're entranced by the image of self. And yet as we keep looking and looking and looking to the depths, when we reach the bottom, the lake, when we see through the surface reflections, the surface images, and we do it by seeing all those disturbances in the reflection at first, but then we keep our gaze steady and we just keep looking and observing. At a certain point, the image disappears. 
at that point, we have found the secret name of ourselves. The sight and feel of the thing in itself. And the wonder of this And the beauty of it is that the more we realize this empty, selfless nature, the more spontaneously love and compassion flow. I want to close with a brief teaching by one of the great Tibetan masters of this century, died a couple of years ago, and actually his, his tulku has since been re, relocated. As Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was one of the great voices of non-sectarian practice. He said, when you realize the true selflessness of phenomena, you will spontaneously feel an all-embracing compassion for all beings who are immersed in the ocean of suffering because they cling to a notion of an ego. This troublesome ego or self, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist anywhere now, and so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. It's only a concept. That's me in parentheses. When you recognize the selfless nature, therefore, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. And so this is the great union of emptiness and compassion. They are really two qualities, two attributes of the same thing. Let's sit for a few minutes. Rest at ease in this spontaneous flow of empty phenomena. It's all a passing show of breath, sensations, thoughts, images. Moment after moment, things being known. everything come and go by itself. No past, no future.
everything presents itself just as it is. Nothing to get, nothing to gain. Notice the difference between the arising of the concept bell in the mind and the simple hearing of the sound. You stand up and begin walking. Notice the difference between the concept in the mind of body standing, a sense of self or I, and the simple awareness of changing sensations. Open to what is actually there moment to moment. Seeing if you can distinguish that from the ideas and concepts of what is there. Because that's really the doorway to freedom. Mm-hmm.